Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. In today's special episode, we continue our special series with Michael Sikora, founding director of the Socrates Project within the Reagan White House. In part two, he sheds light on specific examples of how the Socrates Project would tackle challenges, the different approaches between tech-based and finance-based, and more. Let's dive in. And it seems on the flip side, some have said China's success is because of the top-down approach, where every organ, every company has to serve the interests of the party, which helps them grow so fast. Whereas in America, because of our system, right, certain intelligence communities don't talk to each other, and then they're facing the same threat without realizing it. So how do you balance the two? How do you kind of use that in America without losing the moral ground? That's one of the questions that we addressed, one of the issues we addressed under Reagan. Reagan was a strong supporter, and there's a whole, there's various aspects to the question you ask. Reagan was a strong supporter of a minimum government, okay, free markets, everything else. But yet, and there's been some articles written about this, but yet he, he was a strong supporter of Socrates. Socrates enables the United States to continue to be free-based, market-based, um, democratic, all the things that build us as Americans, and counter what China does as a monolithic. Okay. Let me go back to China a little bit. There's a couple misperceptions. Uh, people look at China and they go, that's just like the Soviet units, top-down, things like that. That's false. Okay. If you look at the Soviet Union, they were government-centric planning. Okay? It was very rigid. That was something we used against them, very inflexible. You could get shot if you didn't follow what, was told, what you were told to do. Okay? China's a little bit different. China learned from Russia's mistakes, Soviet Union's mistakes. So they are more of a hybrid, where it is government-centric and symbiotic. Okay? What this does is it gives the top control to the level they need, but yet gives flexibility to take into consideration the market, uh, free thought to a certain extent. Okay. So the way it works is there is the centralized planning. Okay. They utilize that with government-centric on certain large organizations certain critical organizations for, for critical industries, things like that. But then outside of that, you've got this whole ring. So you can think of it as central inner ring of government-centric planning, and then you've got symbiotic, where all these smaller organizations, like incubators that are popping up, VCs, these other ones, know that they have to serve those organizations which are government-centric planning. Okay. So what happens is they line up with the government-centric planning, but yet they have a certain level of freedom to go out there and try new things, be free market-oriented, and whatever. Because one of the things that squashed the Soviets was the people who really know how to act fast are the people with the boots on the ground, as the saying goes. They could see what happens in the market. They could see what the competitor's doing. And if you've got to wait for somebody from the top to come down, it could be a year for your new, your new rules to come down or your new uh, marching orders. But when you've got that interface where they're free to a certain extent, but they know the more they line up with the organizations which are government-centric, the more support they will get from other organizations. 
Because in symbiotic planning, what happens is, goes back to Japan. Japan was symbiotic planning in the sense that Meade came up with the national technology strategy. But they knew in that, in that national technology strategy, it was addressing companies like Sony and the other ones. But they knew that if they told Sony, which they didn't ever tell, or if they directed Sony to do something Sony didn't want to do, Sony would say, we don't have to do it. We're a democracy. Okay. So what they did is they designed it such that, well, it may push it in the national direction, but it's so much, pretty much in line with what Sony wants to do. So what happens is Sony looks at that and says, right, if we line up with it, and other people line up with it, like the banks, the universities, things like that, we got more other technology exploitation to leverage. So the more we line up with them, the more other resources are available. So centerpiece says, yes, we would like you to do this. They say, yes, we'd like to do that. Gives us more resources. That's basically the same thing China does, government-centric, what have you. So if we go to Socrates, Socrates was designed to give symbiotic relationships, okay, where what we can do is we can come up with a national technology strategy, but not government-centric, but yet what is determined by the entire U.S. ecosystem, economic and military, which is a whole discussion in itself, okay, and that's all been worked out, and there's actually legislation passed on that already. And from there, the individual organizations throughout the U.S. ecosystem can figure out how to exploit technology from Socrates, technology-based planning, that best lines up with the national technology strategy. It's not dictated. But they know that hmm, the country is going in the direction of technology X. That means the universities are going to try to go in that direction because that's where their employment is going to be. And the students are going to go there. And the banks see that if the country is going in that direction, their, their loans and the VCs' money is going to be, have a lower risk if they go in that direction too. So now all of a sudden you see people can now leverage each other's technology exploitation to generate a increased competitive advantage because they're working as a team, but it's all voluntary. So that's how the United States works as a team, which has a higher degree of flexibility and it's all independent, such that we can outmaneuver China's somewhat monolithic because it's government-centric and then symbiotic. When it comes to the financial sphere, it seems a lot of American businesses, for example, struggle with maybe wanting to do business in China for the cheap labor, but then not wanting to do it because of the cheap labor and all the human rights concerns. But it's gotten to the point where a lot of Americans, the consumers, don't want to buy things manufactured in China. But how do you get around that? Because Chinese-made goods, many with slave labor, are still pouring into the country. So what can be done? Well, there's, there's a couple approaches to it. Number one, if you look at technology, it's rapidly evolving to the point where we can replace a lot of the, man, a lot of the manual such that the, uh, the price will drop comparably. But at the same time, it's when the U.S. goes to China for manufacturing, what's been going on a long time and now they've gotten smart to it to some degree, is they will require the technology and the Chinese will require the technology in order to do the manufacturing. Okay? And in most cases, what China is doing is building up their capabilities to eventually push the United States out of, that out of that industry and they take more and more and more. 
But if you know exactly what China's technology strategy is, you can play the game to leverage what they have in terms of technology, cheap labor, and whatever, without putting them into a position of eventually pushing, up, pushing you out of the market. Okay? Such that you can balance out the cost, you can balance out your, your near, mid, and long-term competitive advantage. We've seen that with U.S. companies where they're willing to give it up but won't realize that in five years they're going to lose that entire market because they've been giving up the technology. But on the other hand, if they give them these technologies but not this technology, A rather than B, they will control their competitive advantage because they're looking at exactly how they can evolve the technology, how they can maneuver in it to maintain the competitive advantage. So the key is not technology. The key is maneuvering in the technology exploitation. Americans tend to have this idea that there's magical technologies. If we get the breakthrough in hypervelocity vehicles, we're going to win the battle. If we get the breakthrough in IE, we're going to win the battle. We're going to be competitive. No. It's a constant game of maneuvering. It's a constant game of acquiring, countering, and what have you to, to maintain that competitive advantage, where the competitive advantage can sometimes be big, can sometimes be small. It's where China, for example, has a national technology strategy to go into technology X. And that techno national technology strategy is being executed by 12 little Chinese companies. Each one of them seems inconsequential. But each one is acquiring a nice little foothold, i.e. a technology isolation offensive, into an industry into a, and into a market, which then they expand, coordinate, and what have you, and then they're a major force. It is a very adroit chess game. But here is the saving grace for the United States and the West. China learned to play that game of technology exploitation chess as a trial and error art. Okay, like we talked about, based on serendipity. Okay, Socrates does it as a science. That's how we consistently outmaneuver them, speed, efficiency, and agility. And Michael, you mentioned earlier how for example, the U.S. passing the Chips and Science Act didn't really solve the issue, right? So what would solve the issue? What are the steps needed to be taken? Well, as we did in, um, in the 80s, I mean, we were a key element that Reagan used to bring down the Soviet Union. We identified the China threat. We saw exactly what they were doing, technology strategies, technology-based planning, national technology strategies. And we were on track to contain China, contain China. Okay. So what we need to do is reestablish the Socrates project. Okay. If you look at the Chips Act, okay, two hundred and sixty plus billion dollars, all going for basically R and D. Okay, technology exploitation in a broad sense. So it's going for R and D. It's going for increasing manufacturing subsidies and things like that. Okay. But we're going to get outmaneuvered. So that 260 plus billion dollars is going to get outmaneuvered. When I talked to a certain congressman on the Hill about it, I asked, who do you think likes the, uh, that legislation? They said, oh, the CHIPS people, the IC people. And I said, no, nah, it wasn't really the IC people. He said, oh, the universities, they get a lot of money too. And I said, no, nah, it wasn't actually them. I said, it's China, because it does exactly what China wants. It puts us in the position of thinking we're in an R&D foot race. It's all a matter of out r and the other side. We're going to put our blinders on, race for the finish line, and spend 260 plus, plus, plus billions of dollars. China will outmaneuver that R&D such that it does not generate the competitive advantage we expect, 
and we're going to be 260 plus more billion dollars in debt, if not a lot more. That's how we solve the problem. That was Michael Sikora, founding director of the Socrates Project within the Reagan White House. And after a break, we hear more from him on how exactly a technology space can help not just us, but also our allies, the ways it can counter adversarial threats like the Chinese regime, and more. That's coming up in just a minute here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Next, we continue our special coverage with Michael Sikora, founding director of the Socrates Project within the Reagan White House. He sheds light on how exactly a technology space can help not just us, but also our allies, the ways it can counter adversarial threats like the Chinese regime, and more. Let's dive in. And so for something like the Socrates Project to work, does it have to have the government behind it or what kind of process is involved? No, it just needs to be adopted by the government. Um, I can actually be anywhere, okay, but what's important that it is deployed throughout the U.S. competitive ecosystem, economic and military. And that's, I mean, that brings up another sorry point in that people think of military and economic as separate. If you look at China's technology strategy, national technology strategy, they don't differentiate. It's all one continuum of technology. Okay, we say, well, this is a military strategy, uh, technology, this is a commercial tra- uh, technology, and then we break it down. This is an auto industry technology, this is an aerospace technology. It's all one continuum. China addresses it one continuum. That's one of the things that Socrates brought to the table was the ability to look at all technology, as we call it, technology space, four-dimensional technology space, which is a full continuum of everything from pre-technologies to technologies across all industries, high-tech, low-tech, medium-tech, soft technology, low technology. All has to be there, okay? But that means it has to be deployed throughout the entire ecosystem. And, as we were on track to do with Reagan, it also needs to be deployed. It was scheduled to then expand out and support our allies to build their economies very, very strongly. And so if that were to happen, how would we work with the allies then, for example? Basically, they have the same access to the Socrates system or their own version of it because when we talked about symbiotic relationships, so basically what you have is you have two impacts. Number one, you've got automated innovation which allows them, our ally, let's say Australia, one of our favorites, okay, we don't have favorites, right? But one of our favorites. Australia can now exploit technology, the entire ecosystem of organizations, which is high-tech, low-tech, medium-tech, you know, it's the, it's the mining, it's the cattle ranching, all those have technology. There's no industry whose competitive advantage is not based upon technology and technology exploitation. That's it, okay? So now all their industries, which was what makes a country competitive, all those industries can now exploit technology with speed, efficiency, and agility that China cannot match. Okay? And second, 
it allows them to develop symbiotic relationships for organizations to leverage each other's technology exploitation, banks, universities, all of it, everybody, in country and then between countries. So now, you know, a, a, a lab in or a university in uh, Sydney can be leveraging the technology exploitation of a university in Texas, okay? And a VC, a venture capitalist, can now leverage a bank in Texas. So, and there's banking laws, of course, but there's all these ways that the organizations can now, on a personal level, leverage each other's technology exploitation, okay? And that goes, let me be clear, it goes far beyond just R&D. It's not just we're gonna leverage each other's R&D. It is, for example, a VC who now can see that a company has extreme high probability of success because he can see exactly the competitive advantage he's going to have, how long he's going to have it, his efficiency of his technology exploitation, such that he can now invest with high return, extremely low risk, which is also now beneficial to the small company. And then the universities can look at that and say, we know the technology strategy means this company is going to be competitive in five years in this industry, brand new industry, and they're going to need people with these expertise. So now we can align our students, classes and things like that, bring in the professor to teach exactly what's going to be coming online. Okay, and we can go to our alumni and say we would like some funding and we can show you exactly how that money is going to be effectively spent for the good of the United States in turn increasing our competitiveness. Because we can show you that company is going to be a major player in the new industry. Here's the competitive advantage they're going to have. Here long, here's how long they're going to have it. And we know the bank or that we know the VC is funding them with low risk, high return funding and we're going to put the classes in place, and these students are going to be guaranteed a very good job when they get out in five years in an industry, in a company that's going to be leading worldwide. It all syncs up from the technology exploitation. Michael, you mentioned how in the beginning Socrates' project was kind of deployed to look at our weaknesses, and then eventually once we build up, we can also help allies, and then... After that, what would you use it for? How would you counter the Chinese regime, for example? That is the third step that was always designed and was in the executive order, President Reagan's executive order. If you look at it, we saw it as three levels. First, the U.S., okay? Then we expand out to our allies. Then third, we go for the big stuff. Because if you look at all the challenges facing mankind, water, energy, uh, education, poverty, all those require a competitive advantage. And when we talk about a competitive advantage, it's not just against a company or another country. It can be against a problem or an issue, okay? And every one of them, that competitive advantage is based upon exploiting the technology more effectively than the threat, okay? And when you look at the various initiatives to solve things like hunger, all these other ones, they basically put a pile of money together and do these little pet projects. Okay, I've worked with some of these people. But what happens when you can exploit technology with efficiency, speed, and agility that's unprecedented, where you can coordinate all the various technology exploitation worldwide, voluntarily, of course, because you know, the way it works, to att attach the, attack the problem of water, okay? And now, because when we talked about 
we can go from trial and error R&D to very precise and accurate R&D because we know if we take A and B and put it together, we get C. Now our efficiency goes up in our basic R&D. So now we can exploit technology to address the major issues like water, energy, hungry, which are far more effective than these Band-Aid fixes, spend a lot of money, put into a prep project and hope for the best. And most of those pet projects die on the vine. I mean, they're very cool things. They put a little glip in it and things like that, but they don't solve the problem. So the third thing Socrates was designed to go after was, okay, we got things stabilized. Everybody's looking good. Everybody's acting friendly. Okay, now let's go after the big issues. And that's where the real fun, that's where the real excitement happens. Because one of the things that happens is if you take these countries and you address these problems, they become very strong, they become very self-sufficient, they stand on their own two feet, and you've got even more stability in the world. So when it comes to poverty, for example, how would, say, the Socrates Project work in that regard? Because right now it seems like we're throwing a lot of money at these issues. So how would you counter that then? If you look at it, I mean, if you look at some of the initiatives, like there was one back a few years ago, it was quite a few years ago, where they said, we're just going to buy a bunch of computers and send them down to Africa. Didn't really do much. Right? I think last time I heard, they were all sitting on the dock still because there's no electricity. And what do you do with a computer with no electricity? But if you look at it, there's two things. Number one, and we've, we've dealt with countries, Colombia, Malaysia, just a whole bunch. If you, if you look at all these countries, every one of them has some strength, okay, number one. Number two, it's not just high tech that generates a competitive advantage. So if we talk about poverty, trying to go to a very small country which is very impoverished and say, we're gonna, we're gonna take some of your people, and I've seen this, I've been in these countries, they go, we've got some professors, they got a real cool technology, they're gonna uh, commercialize it, and it's gonna go on the press as economic development. Well, guess what? They build a company that employs 20 people, and they get rich, someone. What you need to do is you need to figure out what they have, okay, what technologies will allow them to exploit that in a fashion which gives them an economic base. So if you've got, I don't know, some sort of, of uh, uh, natural whatever, and you've got people who are good at whatever, and we can look at the technology, because remember, when we're looking at technology exploitation, we're looking at high-tech, low-tech, medium-tech, we're looking at hard technology, we're looking at soft technology. So, for example, we were working in Colombia. One of their biggest industries was cut flowers. Oh, there's no technology there, right? No, there's a ton of technology. That was one of their biggest industries besides petrochemical. And number two, that employed a lot of single women, single mothers, okay? So you had this whole sector of the society dependent upon cut flowers. So we're down there looking at how do we, because China at this point in time was looking at taking that industry away from Colombia. So we're looking at how do we use technology exploitation to enable them to maintain it and strengthen it. Well, if you look at it, we've got the seeds, the planting, the harvesting, and one of the big things is preserving the flowers into market, knowing how long they're being going to be preserved, and being able to calculate all that. That's all technology. So with a little bit of technology maneuvering, outmaneuvering China in those technologies, we would maintain Colombia's industry, which was, people say, that's not high tech. It's what they had. It's where their strength was. They had very unique strengths there that with technology exploitation allowed them to maintain that strength and their economic 
success in the country. And there's no country in the world that doesn't have something. But it's a matter of figuring out what it is and then maneuvering. And in some cases, it's going to mean acquiring technologies from here, technologies here. It's what China did. I mean, dirt cheap to a certain extent, or what Japan did. They say, we've got cheap labor. Okay, we need this technology, this technology, this technology, national technology strategy. And then they bumped up. Then they got this technology, and they continue to bump up and maneuver around to get bigger and bigger until they're, they're you know, challenging us in quantum. Okay, very adroit maneuvering. Any country can do that. Okay, technology strategy and figuring out how they maneuver, what they need there to fill a market that they can feel better because they got cheap labor, they've got massive land, they've got great climate, they've got whatever. Everybody can do it. That's what we were designed to do. And that's what we're anxious to do. It's going to be fun. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. My pleasure. That was Michael Sikora, founding director of the Socrates Project within the Reagan White House. And if you have questions for Michael Sikora on how this works, we want to hear from you. Leave your question down below. Or if you're watching on cable, email us at chinainfocus.ntd.com. And we might bring him back on for a live Q&A with audience participation. Thanks for watching China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer, and see you soon.